Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the specialist digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Now, for long-time listeners, you will probably already know who we are. You may have even heard one of our ads on a previous episode of this podcast. But for those of you who don't, here is a short introduction. At Create Engage, we help you create an effective marketing strategy for your consultancy, a strategy that will resonate with your target clients. And then we support you by delivering the campaigns you need to turn that strategy into a reality helping you to build your brand, raise your profile with your prospective clients, and ultimately generate return on investment from your marketing activity. Now, I could tell you about many of the great clients that we work with and the results we've delivered for them. But instead, I'm going to do something much more powerful and something that I would recommend you do for your own marketing. I'm going to let our clients do the talking for us. If you are currently thinking about marketing for your consultancy, you're going to want to listen to this. Create Engage started the process for us. They managed it end to end. They came up with some really creative ideas and we were really happy with the work that they did, which meant that we could just focus on running the business. Not only did we start conversations with clients that we hadn't spoken to before, but also there was tangible return on investment by some work that we were given. They've helped right from the initial shaping of the idea through to helping us work out what our end goal was. They've supported us with the visual identity and our positioning of the brand. We've had an immediate expansion of our network and and have initiated a raft of new conversations with owners, CEOs in in target client organisations and has led to us winning new projects already. One of the greatest compliments, I guess, is that one of our competitors even said that uh, they really like what we're doing with marketing. They wish they could be doing something as good. So from our perspective, we couldn't recommend Create Engage any more than this. I would certainly recommend Create Engage if you're a consulting firm. They really understand consultancies and the sort of challenges we face. And, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to get much better marketing anywhere else. So I wouldn't hesitate to recommend Create Engage. They did a really good job for us. So if you're looking for an agency that can help you achieve the results that our clients just described, then head to our website createengage.co.uk where you can find out more about how we support consulting firms like you. You can download our latest ebook and you can get in touch to talk about how we can help you take your consultancy to the next level through digital marketing. Hi and welcome to today's episode of Climate Consulting. In this one I speak to Remco Optenkelder, CEO of Putnam Associates. I was introduced to Remco by Matthew Bennett at Ascent Professional Services, who, knowing Remco well, thought he would make a great guest for the show. And Matthew was certainly right about that. Remco's journey in consulting started with a temporary relocation to America. He thought he might be there for a few years, and 20 years later, he's still there and is now CEO of the firm he joined as a graduate. In a world where people move firms every few years, Remco's story is something of a rarity in our industry. And even though he stayed at just one firm for his whole career, his journey from analyst to CEO has been a rich, rewarding, and varied one, and proof that there's many different ways to climb to the top in our industry. Over the time that Remco's been at Putnam, it has seen significant growth, particularly over the last few years, scaling from around 100 consultants to over 400 today, much of which happened during the pandemic. 
In this conversation, we explore Remco's fascinating career journey and talk about many of the challenges that come with scaling a rapidly growing consulting business, including how to manage growth at the partner level and the important changes that the Putnam team made to their leadership approach that helped them scale as fast as they have. The challenges of recruiting for a growing business and why growing talent from within your firm is critical to your success and the role that the office plays in a post-COVID world, how Putnam are changing their physical environment to respond, and what you should be thinking about for your own consultancy to ensure your office gives your team what they need to be effective. When you're mapping out your career in consulting, the idea of staying in one organization, it doesn't always appeal to many, but Remco is proof that you don't need to hop from one firm to another to achieve career success. So whether you are on the path to CEO and want to learn the secrets of reaching the top, or maybe you're already there and want to hear advice from a peer who has achieved the growth that many firms are looking for, this conversation is going to be one that I know you will really enjoy. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Remco Optenkelder. Remco, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to chat today. Thank you. And so... This, I think, you know, this was an intro from Matt at Descent Pro, and he, having worked in the industry for a long time, has a good handle on who I should speak to. He's an avid listener, knows a lot of firms, um, particularly in the US, and said, you should speak to Remco. He's got a great story. He's going to be brilliant for your listeners. So if I haven't built you up too much, that's the starting point. And, you know, we've caught up a bit ahead of this, and I'm really excited to talk about some of the things I know we're going to. But for those who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great if you could start with, I guess, an overview of your career and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, absolutely. So, A, I hope I will live up to the expectations. But going back in time a little bit, given that I've been at Putnam for the last 22 years, I grew up in the Netherlands and I did my undergraduate in international management there. Then I went to Glasgow and did a master's in um, international marketing at Strathclyde University. And then, like many other people, I started to look, well, what am I going to do after college? And quite honestly, I hadn't given consulting too much thought. It was kind of like an abstract abstract thing at that point in time. And so I, I started to think about what I wanted to do. And I met with some companies that are like more traditional, kind of like your Unilever, your uh, Denon, that kind of like have more consumer products. And so there were several opportunities where I would be working on one project as kind of like a junior kind of like marketing manager. But then this consulting opportunity kind of came by and I was thinking, well, I can see a lot of different problems. <laughs> I can see a lot more in a quicker amount of time. And if I do that for three or four years, right, then I have so much experience that I can now take in a different direction. So that's how I first kind of like rolled into consulting, not really knowing what it is, but it sounded very intriguing. The fact that it was in healthcare was interesting to me because healthcare is fundamental to almost like everything that we do. And so having the opportunity to work in this industry and help solve kind of like some of the problems that the industry is facing was was great. And, and very transparently, when I first went into consulting, I thought this was a like three, four year kind of like career move. A, it was in the US. I'm from Europe. I'd never been in the US before I took this job. I never interviewed in the US for this job. So I kind of like showed up on my my day one thinking that, okay, I'm going to live in the US for the next three to four years and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Well, three, four years went by and it went well. And I continued to kind of like see my role evolve on the projects that, that I was leading and the clients that I was working with uh, seemed to be the value of having kind of like me be part of kind of like their projects. The teams that I was working within were great, both from a 
but the guidance and the leadership that the partners at that time showed in helping kind of like us develop, kind of like as individuals, but also as professionals and actually as like as individuals that can provide strategic guidance to kind of like our clients. And so we're starting to look at like that three, four year mark and thinking, well, where do I go from here? And then right, I looked around a little bit and said, well, if I stay around for another couple of years, right, I can actually make potentially a better transition into industry. So I ended up staying around, got promoted to, to manager and then into the principal direction, which is kind of like the point at Popton where you start to go from the execution side of the projects to more of kind of like the the execution, but also looking for like opportunities to actually engage with clients to better understand where the needs are and therefore kind of like sell them the actual projects. So I went into that direction and, and I noticed, well, there's actually a significant change in the role that I have now. <laughs> I have a whole new job while staying within kind of like the same company. And then the next step from there was kind of like I, I got closer to kind of like that partner role. And the interesting part to me was, was like, well, that's another whole new job because you kind of go from right, just executing projects to right, thinking about, okay, how do I now sell projects as well to, well, how am I part of the team that actually makes this firm run? <laughs> and so given kind of like that experience kind of curve, it always kept me at Putnam because whenever I kind of got to that point where I thought, well, where am I going to go next? There's this other door and this other layer that kind of like opened within the within my career that I thought, well, this is great to pursue. Why go look for it somewhere else if I have it right here? So that led to kind of like me becoming partner about a decade ago now. And then three years ago, we decided, and I'm sure we'll get into this a little bit more in detail later on, but we decided to join a larger firm because we thought that kind of like global expansion was a, a critical component kind of like for us to be successful in the long run. At that point, I took the next step um, to kind of like step away a little bit from kind of like client facing work and become more of kind of like the CEO that, that I am today to kind of like help kind of like move into kind of like that next phase of kind of like growth that we're pursuing. And I, when I say I, it's really kind of like the, the complete team that we have at, at Putnam here. It's uh, in the end, and then we'll talk about this this more later, it's kind of like how we build up strategy is very much in a traditional kind of like consulting where it's bottoms up, right? How do we activate people to drive the overall firm forward? Well, I think a really, really good overview. And as we've talked about, and I think why I'm so looking forward to this conversation, I've, I've had very few guests who have, have frankly done what you've just described and been in one firm for their entire career. And I think it gives you a very unique perspective and I think lots for us to dig into. I, I realize, and I just, before we go on to sort of what you were saying, particularly you know, sort of actually the journey and the route to CEO, I just love to ask, how did the role come about? Because to your point, you're in Strathclyde, which for our US listeners is a city in Scotland. It's not that close to the US. You know, you, when you were going for that role, I suspect you fill in the blanks. Like, I, Were there as many online job boards? How did the role at Putnam, which, and again, place for my audience, the kind of size, like you were nowhere near the size you are now. So how did that opportunity come about? And what made you go, you know, what, I'm going to fly halfway across the world to pursue it? Good question. And definitely job boards were around at that time, but not as evolved. There was no LinkedIn. There was no. So it was like old fashioned networks is how I would describe it. And so somebody that I knew at Stratclyde knew somebody that knew somebody that had a company that actually placed, and you're going to laugh at this, but like placed tree climbers, tree doctors in the US from Germany. And they wanted to expand kind of like their their business model to say, well, how do we arrange visas and make the connections between Right, people that have the right background for strategy consulting into kind of like U.S. firms. And so I happened to be put in touch like to that individual through kind of like like through like your, your standard game of telephone. <laughs> and in the end, it's like they 
put me in contact with the managing partner at Putnam at that point in time. So he flew to the UK to kind of like interview me instead of me flying to the US to kind of like be interviewed. And so I met with him. I had one interview with him and I interviewed with two other people at Putnam over the phone. And so I got placed kind of like at Putnam. I was the first and last and only individual that got placed by that company under the strategy kind of like uh, initiative. But it, it worked out well in the end. I love that. And that is a claim to fame. And like you say, so 20 years later, it's gone very well for you. And, and maybe we start there because obviously there's lots for us to dig into that journey. But I think bringing us up to speed and kind of where you are now and almost maybe we just place it for our listeners. And I know when we talked about sort of ahead of this, you talked about the different versions of Putnam. Maybe we start there kind of which version are we in right now? What does that look like? And then we can kind of work back in and some of those poignant points along the journey. So if I would look at where Putnam is today, it is at version 3.0. And what that means is at Putnam, from a firm perspective, we have our own leadership, we have our own team, we set our own strategy, but at the same time, we're actually part of a larger firm. And that larger firm is right, the largest global commercialization firm for the biopharmaceutical industry. And so what that means is we have a wealth of like knowledge that sits within the broader organization that we can tap into. It also allows us to kind of like tap into resources that if we're looking for an investment, right, we can say, hey, here's our rationale of why we want to move in a certain direction. We would like you to support us on this. And if I go back to the decision to kind of like go from version 2.0 to 3.0, that was actually a core driver of kind of like that decision. It's like, okay, if we want to but expand Putnam significantly, if we want to continue to grow, if we want to continue to provide opportunity for the team members, right, that are are coming up kind of like through the different levels of consulting, we felt strongly that right, we need to have stronger kind of like financial backing and a greater global footprint to allow us to do that. So what has that resulted in since we kind of like made that transition? It has allowed us to right, more rapidly expand globally, and in particular, kind of like our, our London office. We've made some targeted acquisitions to actually kind of complement the skill sets that we have at Putnam. We've been able to expand areas in like learning and development that has always been underinvested, partially because, right, where's the time going to come from? But bringing in people now that actually own that. And so when we have those thoughts and kind of like, okay, what are the pieces of the puzzle that we want to put in place to allow us to maintain kind of like our growth trajectory, we felt having kind of like that, that broader support would be extremely helpful. So that's been three years now since we've kind of like went through that transition. And so far, it has worked extremely well for us and has definitely seen a transformation of where we were like three, three and a half years ago to where we are today. Partially, that transformation is due to COVID. <laughs> it changed kind of like our ways of working. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dive into that a little bit deeper later on. But partially, it is because kind of like we had kind of like an ability to kind of like be more aggressive in like the investment in our firm and most importantly, like our people that ultimately drive the work that we do. So I, th- I think there's a lot in there, Remco. And, and it might be that the pandemic was the catalyst, but you mentioned a lot of different things you've done and you know for for people listening the, the firm's growing almost fourfold hasn't it in that kind of two to three year period give or take you're absolutely right when when we joined our parent organization we were about like 120 people and we're now about 420 people wow so so that is phenomenal growth and i do want to touch on you mentioned sort of the london expansion and some of your acquisitions i think there's a really interesting cultural question there but just to that point is obviously the the investment, if you like, fuels, gives you the sort of financial fuel, but you need to have the car to go with it. And I just, I guess I'd love to understand in those early days of 
either the decision to get that investment or when you sort of came on board with your parent. Actually, how did you and your fellow partners kind of structure that plan? Because it's worked out very well for you, but there's always that sort of, well, how do you know you've got so much money? How do you know where to go? How do you know where to place those bets? And I just, I'd love to know how you structured that to prepare yourself for that journey you've been on. Yeah, and it's it's something that is a uh, evolution, not a revolution, and it's it's a work in process, right? As we continue to kind of like evolve as a firm, we continue to adapt our strategy, and so that the first thing that we started to do, and it's really kind of like coming into its own, actually, over the last twelve to eighteen months, is have a much more focus on on like a bottoms up leadership owned strategy, and what we mean by that is historically. The strategy was driven by the leadership, but everybody on the leadership was in on every single discussion. (laughs) That works well when you have like 40 people, 70 people, maybe even 100 people. But once you get to your uh, size and scale that we are today, that becomes a lot more challenging. So in order to solve for that, we've been really focused on we need one strategy as Putnam. But we have like specific practice areas within Putnam that actually allows us to say, okay, from a value pricing and access perspective, what is our strategy as we're heading into 2023, 2024, 2025? What is the vision kind of like for that practice area? And we have a group of team members that like drive that strategy. <laughs> the same for kind of like a commercial practice area. We have the same structure and then we have our data analytics and we're in the process of adding two additional kind of like practice areas. So it allows us to have like a very much a bottoms up driven right strategy that comes through based on what the client's needs are from the perspective of the people that work most closely in the areas that we're focused on from a service delivery model perspective. Then we also set up much more of a people strategy. What do we need to do to kind of like drive our people strategy forward, be the employer of choice? What are the trade-offs that we are looking to make (laughs) as we're making those? Because you cannot be everything to everybody all the time, which is definitely one of the hard lessons kind of like that we all learn as we, we go through this process. And so that has allowed us to have, I think, a much more effective way to actually being focused on growing and evolving the business by really activating kind of like our broad leadership team in right, taking components of the strategy forward and then having a level of accountability to the full leadership team to articulate what that is and then potentially how it fits into right, some of the uh, the broader, higher level kind of like considerations that, that we're focused on. I think some some really great insights there. And I, there's an obvious question, and I think we're going to blur the line with cultural change, because I think as you grow a business, you know, you, as you talked about, sort of what worked when you were 40, 70 doesn't work when you're 400. But actually, how did you as a leadership team get comfortable with that? And and I, I doubt this will be the first time I ask questions like this, Remco, but obviously having been with the firm for so long, and you know, you, you mentioned uh, when we first spoke, like some of the partners that you worked with as, a, as an analyst as your first year are still still partners today. How did you get as a leadership team comfortable with that approach? Because while it obviously is working for you and sounds very sensible for the size of business you are, it's quite a shift in what you were doing. You know, everyone's involved to actually, you may not hear about it until the end. How did you as a leadership team get comfortable with that? It took time and a lot of discussion and a lot of debate and some spirited arguments. And it wasn't like a, but overnight, we kind of like make that switch. I think we, for the last, like, for the first 18 months, kind of like following kind of like the starter version, right, 3.0, I think there's been a lot of discussions and a lot of like, like painting the future and right, a little bit of like a, a little bit of like a tug of war, kind of like, okay, which direction should we be going into? And right, how do we make sure that 
right? People feel invested, right, in the organization, even as, right, maybe they're kind of like not as close to everything that's going on on a day-to-day basis, but at least kind of have a good 10,000-foot view of everything, but then like a thousand-foot view on the things that kind of like they're really kind of like taking ownership of. And so it took time to help us kind of like get there. And um, I think we're now at the stage where actually we we're starting to see the benefits of like some of those steps that we've taken. But like you said, culturally, it was a massive shift because right, the same people that right, we, we always sat around with a table with, which was basically, right, if I go back four years, it was six people. Well, that, that same group of people, if we now look at like the same titling structure, well, that's now 22 people. Wow. And so you, you'll see kind of like the, the, the challenge kind of like of maintaining kind of like that same kind of like approach to kind of like managing the firm would be much more challenges if you actually have to do that kind of like with, with 22 people. Aligning calendars is one thing. It's a whole other thing to actually aligning kind of like uh, like decision making, actually making actionable steps forward. And that's where I think kind of like the, the, the breakout in smaller like sub teams has worked well while maintaining the focus on we should all know what's what's happening kind of like across, but it becomes more of like a, okay, value pricing and access presents their strategy and answers the questions and engages with the broader team rather than the whole team seeking to develop <laughs> the value pricing and access strategy for Putnam. I'm in my head, Remco, right now thinking, do we stay on growth where, where I've got lots of questions or do we go on to culture? Because I think there's there's a fascinating, I guess, discussion in that. And maybe I'll answer my own question and say, why don't we lean towards culture? Because there's some elements in that growth story I, I do want to come back to, and particularly the the offices you've launched outside the US and also how you've you've recruited for them, because that's the hardest thing at the moment. You know, having the money to hire people is one thing. Finding the people, as we all know, is very different at the moment. I think that cultural piece, and, and maybe we start at that top table, the sort of partner level. I assume that's the six to twenty-two was p- people called partner or, or a title there similar. Actually, how did you balance that journey in terms of taking the culture that you knew from, call it V one as you described, and those partners knew, and bringing these new people in? Because when there's twenty-two, that's my quick math says that's kind of close to four times the number, which means there's three times the people who might not agree with you how did you balance that and make sure you were bringing in the right people and then creating a culture that supported what you had done and didn't i guess go awry or or take a turn that you hadn't expected simply because of the power of majority yeah so the a i think there's a little bit of history of like how the people kind of grew into that role and so the vast majority of people that actually grew in that role were people that we didn't necessarily hire into those roles they had been Uh, for putnam for anywhere between like 10 and like three years kind of like before they kind of like entered into like the principal partner role and so i think that's actually really an important caveat to kind of like that mm -hmm. growth story so we we've brought people in at the principal partner level but we also have grown a lot of people into kind of like those roles. And I think that helps to kind of like maintain that culture, ways of working and right, right, staying focused on the values kind of like that we have as an organization to ensure that we have the right balance. Like I'm a firm believer that the there has to be two pathways to growth. One is how do you elevate people internally and how do you continue to kind of like support, motivate, reward people for kind of like the journey that they're on? And providing that clear like visibility into right the opportunities that come along with that, both from a professional and, and personal standpoint. 
And then there's the, well, we have to supplement that by bringing in kind of like and recruiting from the the outside as well to allow us to kind of like maintain kind of like that, that growth rate that we're currently on. And sometimes it's it's right a geographic right, considerations where like we will have to look at <laughs> external kind of like senior level hires because we don't necessarily have somebody that we can place in that position. So the fact that we balanced the expansion of that team, of our leadership team, both from a like outside perspective as well as inside perspective, I think has been helpful to kind of like retain that balance of culture. That's not to say that cultures will shift. And I think the pandemic right, has definitely played played a role in that. And if I would bring it back to, well, values across Putnam should be extremely consistent, right? We should all work towards kind of like the same values. However, from a culture perspective, right, we do see nuances across offices, right? We we want to make sure that there's elements that are consistent. But then, right, if I go into right, London or uh, San Francisco, which are like 25-person offices at this point in time, well, you're going to find a little bit of a difference, right, culture <laughs> than we have in Boston, where we have like 120 people. And so that's just, I think, something that we're sensitive to, that we, we need to balance kind of like the the, uh, the 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 values that we want our teams to live by, but at the same time also recognize that the culture, although there should be a red thread through all of it, right, should have right, an ability to be adapted, right, based on the, the office that it's in. And I always like to say, you don't dictate a culture, right? A culture is created by the team <laughs> that sits there. And that's why I think you see some of those nuances. I think it's a really good point. And we'll go back and forth a bit throughout the growth and culture piece. So so this question might give the answer to it of actually, how have you approached growing those new hubs, if you want to call it that, you know, London, San Francisco, for instance, to make sure they live those values and create a culture that I guess is supportive and not disruptive to the group. But to your point, with those nuances, is it about how you structure the office and the physical environment? Is it the people? What What's your sort of approach been to do that? So all of the offices that we opened, we actually start with moving some people over from where we are. And that doesn't always have to be kind of like a leadership individual, but after, mm. like in both New York and San Francisco, when we opened the office, we had principals that like went down there because they were interested in like further developing those markets. In London, we sent two of our, what we call like our case team leaders. So our consultant manager, we, we send out a number of people to our London office. We send out two COVID messed it up a little bit because we opened that office on January 1st. It wasn't the greatest timing, but we send over three, four people there to kind of like open it up. We hired two people that we knew would be a good cultural fit. Like we were almost more focused on making sure that we get the culture right. And we we, we put together a team that can help us kind of like expand because we know that culture attracts people. The work that we do is extremely interesting, but if people don't feel the connection with the team members that they're going to be working with, it's going to be virtually impossible to actually build out a team. So that's how we've worked hard to kind of like maintain that culture. And then what we're starting to do a lot better at this point in time is making sure that, okay, when we have trainings, when we have that, it's delivered in a close to similar way, kind of like across kind of like the different offices, or for some events, we bring people together um, to kind of like allow to kind of like engage kind of like at those trainings and they become as much of like a social connection point rather than just kind of like a, a training, but allowing people to kind of like actually meet each other in person, which after the last two and a half years is something that is very much welcomed uh, by our teams. 
I, I think you're spot on, Remco. Yeah, seeing I've, it's really strange. I'm sure you find this. You meet people, clients, and you know, people you know who you, you may have spoken to for years. And actually, the first you know, I, I had a guest, Mark Campbell, on the show a couple of weeks ago, and the first time I saw him face to face was that podcast in person. We've been working together for two years. You know, I'd never seen below his sort of his chest. He could have just been floating for all I know, and it was quite surreal. So I completely agree, and I feel I can't avoid it any longer. So I'm going to ask about the COVID point because you mentioned there is starting an office with. With COVID. And in some ways, I think it made certain things much easier because everyone was on Zoom, but it also made things much harder for you know some of the reasons you were talking about. How did you have to adapt and, and how did you keep some of that localism, but you know, so that people felt part of the London office, connect them to the group without them feeling, I guess, that sort of faceless, where are we? Where's my sense of place? Yeah. And that was the hard part with COVID, because if we go back to the beginning of COVID, right, we basically did a trial run on a Thursday to see, okay, if we actually ever need to shut down, right, can we actually do it? <laughs> like, can we actually just all work from home and things don't start crumbling? And so the answer to that was yes. And then Friday, we basically told people, go in, get your stuff and like, don't come back. And then we were fairly quick. And can I just check, Remco, sorry, was that? geographic specific because i guess the other context which is obvious but we should address is different global presences or different global countries had different approaches and in the u.s i believe you had different approaches state level as well so was that company-wide or was that specific countries that was company-wide at that point in time so at that point we said forget it we're like we're not going to take the risk we have a very good sense of the direction that this is going on. We do a lot of work in infectious diseases. So we had a good understanding of kind of like epidemiology and like what was in, in store. So we we made that decision. Then also very, very quickly, we basically gave certainty to our teams that like, well, we're going to be closed down for at least X amount of time. A lot earlier than I think many other kind of like organizations, again, because we felt like we, we understand infectious diseases well enough that we have a good view of like the direction of travel. So from that point onwards, though, that we, we started to adjust our approach a little bit dependent on the office. And in particular, in the UK, in general, there's been more times where kind of like things opened up and then they closed back down again. And we used those times to make sure that we would connect our teams in the UK so that they could really kind of like form that 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 closer bond <laughs> as they were building from like what was basically at at the beginning of covid like the the two people that we had to the 25 30 people that we have today so we made sure that kind of like we wherever possible that team kind of like got together and it was also like a different level of comfort in the UK it's kind of like i think it's a it's a cultural trait that like we'll get through this we'll work through it let's let's just keep going on in the US the most frustrating part is it was very hard to plan anything because you would have one state that does this, but then the next day they would change it. And so we we try to right, be clear and transparent in our communications. We early on had weekly update calls to provide kind of like a view on kind of like where we were as a business, kind of like what some of the steps that we're taking, how are we trying to connect to you? We scaled that back then over time to kind of like a, a monthly kind of like firm-wide update, meaning to kind of like provide those overviews. And then as quick as we could, we tried to kind of like have like move to the hybrid working model because that's really kind of like the, the future of of how we're seeing ourselves work we're encouraging people to be in like one or two days a week ensuring that like we give people reasons to come in and connect be it right through right bringing in lunches right doing happy hours having like events in the evening but right we feel the social connection once people experience it that becomes a reason to come in 
the challenge is we have a lot of our people have not experienced that pre-COVID <laughs> because we hired them during COVID. And so it's very abstract to them when they hear people talk about right, the enjoyment of being in an office. It's very abstract. So we're working to kind of like bring that kind of like back together and ensuring that we uh, we kind of like lay those social connections that our teams right, have valued so much in the past and hopefully kind of like bring those kind of like into the future, into this new way of working that we're, we're currently planning for. Yeah, I think, I think there's a really interesting sort of next phase, like you're highlighting the kind of pandemic response we've now obviously lived through. And it is like you say, almost that, how do you recalibrate? What is the office for? And this is probably a big question asking you to announce for the entire US, but how has that been on, on your sort of your side of the pod? Obviously, I'm in the UK, so I can see and you know we have clients who who are dealing with this. But in my sense in the US is that kind of work from home culture was not really part of the DNA prior to COVID. And that might be right or wrong, you can tell me. And I'm really interested, has your team seen that as a real perk only being in two days a week? Is it an adjustment? How are you approaching that to make that kind of soft landing back to the office you know, work in the ways you've described? Yeah, I think the there's been a significant mind shift in how we think about work. Like in pre-COVID, basically 90% of the firm would be in five days a week. The 10% that wasn't was because they were traveling to client sites. <laughs> and so that was basically the way that we worked. And right, our teams would enjoy that, learn from it, right, depend on each other, etc., that has all shifted radically in two ways. It's A, having had the experience that I can actually work productively from home. But also, right, pre-pandemic, right, Putnam had 120 consultants. Almost 90% of those were kind of like in the Boston area. And so if you met with a team, your team was all in the office with you. Now that we have like a substantial, like less than half of our consultants are in our Boston office at this point. And so as a result of that, whenever you now have a team meeting, there's already somebody that will likely be on a Zoom call because we're staffing our projects based on kind of like um, more of like a global kind of like consideration rather than like an office consideration. So that also kind of has pushed us to kind of like more of this like hybrid slash remote way of working because, well, if I'm looking at you at home or in the office that is not making that much of a difference. Um, and that's what we're currently working through is to kind of like thinking through, okay, how do we continue to build the social connections right, in that environment? How are we evolving the physical nature of our office to actually facilitate that? Because in the right, in our current Boston office, which was designed pre-COVID, right, well, everybody had an assigned desk. But you can imagine if certainly everybody starts to talk like we're talking right now, well, that becomes very distracting uh, to team members. And so we, we just opened our new London office. We, we significantly expanded the footprint of it, but we designed it with hybrid working in mind. And so it's, it's rather than right, having a lot of like four to six person conference rooms and having kind of like a lot of desks, right? We're very much focused on, okay, what is it that we actually need to allow people to come in the office and work productively in a hybrid environment where they're likely interacting with a lot of people that are either not assigned to their office or assigned to their office, but they're working from home on that day. And so I think we're going through the same process for Boston right now. We're actually going to evolve the way that we've set up the office and actually put quite a bit of investments in to make sure that like, we have a way of working that actually fits kind of like the today's day and age. I think it's a really interesting example, and you know, you're you're quite right. That kind of how do you create it for the hybrid world? I mean, in the, the room I'm in looks similar to the room you're in, kind of smaller, designed for a one person, two person call like this, as opposed to you know, like you say, I, I remember being in offices where it was all ten, twenty person glass rooms, and that that isn't the way we work anymore. 
I realized just because we've been talking about London, I kind of, I'm, as I said, I come back to things. I just, something we didn't touch on, but particularly for listeners who sort of are in a similar position to you, you talked about London. I guess maybe we use London as a case study or direct me if there's a better one is how did you decide on that geography? And then what steps did you do to make it a success? Because I think, you know, jumping states, you, you may tell me is actually very hard. I don't know, but jumping cross country is always a challenge in consulting. So how, how did you select, say, London? And then what steps have you done to make that office a success? Yeah, so the, the way that we're thinking about expanding into like another location is, is really kind of like four kind of like core points that we're looking at. I mean, this is the same for New York, San Francisco, right, London. We have an office in Delhi as well that right is part of, of Putnam. And so the way that we're looking at it is, A, what is the recruiting potential that we have? What what are the team members that we think kind of like live in kind of like those locations that right, are attractive right for us to hire? And do they want to work for an organization like us? There's some towns where it's just harder. <laughs> the second piece is, can it have a role in retention, right? That this, as we grow in size, a lot of people say, oh, I would love to go to New York for six months, or I would love to transfer to New York, right, for six months or forever. I would love to work in Europe for like, kind of like a six month stint. Then the third piece is, can we service existing clients better? So can we, right, with the work that we already have, right, having a presence there, right, is there actually value in it? And because a lot of our work is global in nature, I think having a firm European footprint is extremely valuable to us. And then the fourth component is, can we build relationships with new clients, <laughs> right, to continue to kind of like grow kind of like the book of business? So those are kind of like the four elements kind of like that we looked at. Now, when we decided on London, this was right around, right, the, the whole Brexit discussion and in the end, right, we stuck with London because we felt that from a the variety of people, right, that we can actually bring into kind of like our office will be more representative of Europe than we can find almost anywhere else, despite the UK kind of like not being part of the EU anymore. So if we're looking at kind of like our team base right now, right, we have Spanish, Italian, German. We actually have some people working in France that are basically like tethered to the UK office. So we felt like London provided us a opportunity to hit all of those core four points that I mentioned, the recruiting, retention, servicing existing clients better, and then actually attracting new clients. And so that was really fundamentally why we chose London. And then you go back to how do you build a team right around it to actually kind of like make all of that come true. And I think we touched already on a lot of those, those aspects is right, making sure that we put some people in that came from our culture, understood our culture, right, and were kind of like the ambassadors Right. hiring people that are right, attracted to that type of culture and the type of work that we're doing, and then slowly building out the full pyramid so it becomes a self-sustainable model. And that was the other key area of focus for us. It was this notion of what we did not want to do is hire four or five people and then see, oh, let's see how this goes. Because the challenge is, if you lose one or two of those people, you're back to square one. And so we really kind of like like deemed 2021 as the area of like we built the team, like and we built a sustainable team. And so that's what we did in 2021. 2022 is now much more focused on okay, now how do we right build the client base right in Europe and kind of, so that's step two. So we we very much looked at it as kind of like a, a stepwise process in right, making sure that like we created a sustainable kind of presence and then kind of building kind of like the client base from that sustainable presence. When you describe it like that, Remco, it sounds remarkably simple, which I'm sure it, it wasn't. And I think actually a really good structure and to your point, and it's, it's always interesting hearing people's perspectives who aren't sort of in the city or the place, because you're right, London 
you know, even though the UK is no longer part of the EU, has such a diverse mix of cultures and people and you know, probably one of the most in all of the European cities. And there was something in what you said there on the self-sustaining model. And I kind of, this might just be confirming it, but was there a deliberate approach to your point of making these offices standalone and almost respected in the group? And I think to just to place that, what I, I've seen some organizations where satellite offices feel like that, you know, the, the Boston is the center and everyone has to report in. And I'm just using that for, for the cities we know. But was that a deliberate play sort of positioning on your side saying, no, London is going to be a standalone or not, you know, is going to be a business in its own right? And was that a core part of the strategy across the group? Because I think there's an interesting, again, decision point in there and the results it's led to. Yeah, I won't say that necessarily we, we see it as like a business in its own, because the, if, if if you would put all the people at Putnam right on a on a board, it becomes one big spider web. And the spider web shifts because we work on like projects teams that shift every two or three months. So mm. from that perspective, we don't necessarily see it as its own business. When I say self-sustainable, I'm really thinking about it from like the people perspective. And the, the challenge is, right, you, you in, in consulting, you want to build a, a perfect pyramid, right, where you have like, like all your levels are properly represented. And unfortunately, it never exactly kind of like lines up the way that we would all like it. But like, that's what you want to aspire to. So what we wanted to make sure that we, we did in London is to make sure that like we we built that pyramid. So it allowed us to kind of like then look forward and say, OK, now we've built the pyramid. Now we can like start to pull projects in that we can then also start to serve through that pyramid. But what often happens is, right, well, GSK or AZ may want to do a, a project with us, but the U.S. is included. Well, then it actually makes a lot of sense to actually pull in U.S. team members as well, <laughs> because, right, then we have like the best of both worlds. We have like the local representation from a global perspective in the U.S. with the deep insight into kind of like the, the U.S. specific market environment. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. And to your point, I think it, it's it's reinforcing that it's one business as opposed to satellite offices. And like you say, it may not be, London is not a sort of standalone sort of P&L, for, for want of a better word, but it is a, the people within it are treated the same across the business. And I think that's a really key key takeaway. And I, you, you mentioned around the sort of, we've, we have touched on the culture and drawing people, but I, I'd love, and you might say this is the secret source you can't share, but that recruitment side is really interesting. And I, and I say that, you know, being based in the UK, we work with a lot of consulting firms. Everyone's recruiting right now. Firms we work with, firms we aren't. It's a hot market. And even with a brilliant culture, yeah, I'm sure there's people are being offered roles sort of left, right and center. What did you do, you know, talk about London or talk broader to really hone that proposition to enable you to grow that team? Because growing 30 people in, you know, the time you have, in London's an achievement, let alone the you know three hundred new people you've brought on across the globe. What what sort of deliberate steps did you take to really focus on that? Yeah, so I think I would really bring it back to kind of like a, a couple of like core elements, and it's it's a highlighting the type of work that we do. And I, I always like to say is like clients don't come to us for the easy questions, which is a good thing and a challenging aspect of our of our job. They come to us normally when they have the harder questions, when they're like really stuck with a problem that they have, and we're actually looking for people that are energized by that, right? They don't want to have the easy way out, right? No, I want to solve problems that are like not that easy to solve. And so I think that that actually helps a lot in when we're actually engaging kind of like with team members that may have an interest in joining Putnam. The other aspect, and we, we touched on this, is like culture and, and authenticity, which really kind of like speaks to the desire kind of like of new members to be part of a culture that is like, inclusive, focused on people, focused on development, and also 
although like any other consultancy, right, we have a hierarchical kind of like pyramid, our leadership is very engaged in the projects on a day-to-day basis. So the learning that you have from people that have that 15, 20-year experience, right, in the industry, right, is significant. I know there's other companies where they're a little bit further removed from the business. They're more like that traditional business development role. They bring in the business, but then they're not as engaged with the actual teams anymore. At Putnam, we stay highly engaged, kind of like in the projects that we're actually executing. I think the other part that people we're really excited about is like, this is something new, right? You're part of kind of like building something up and kind of like evolving it into kind of like a true presence. And the the team takes enormous pride in, right? They're close to now not being the smallest office anymore. (laughs) There's a competition, is there? A bit of competition internally about that. Exactly. And so there's this incredibly pride on kind of like what kind of like they have accomplished kind of like over kind of like the the past 20, 24, 30 months, despite kind of like some of the challenges that, that came along with COVID. I think, you know, to your point, reinforces sort of the power of that authenticity, that culture, and also playing to those strengths you have, because you, you, you may not be a big brand in London at the moment, but that ability to grow the office and, and like you say, uh, tapping into the competitive nature all consultants have is, can London become bigger than New York, San Francisco, and who knows, Boston one day? And this is sort of maybe, you know, this may not be a level of detail you go down to, but I just because you mentioned, obviously, you joined the firm as a sort of graduate how has, if at all, your recruitment varied? You know, do you, and you know, fill in the blanks for me, sort of do you recruit at those different levels and, and how, if at all, have you sort of approached those so graduates versus sort of more senior hires? You know, do you go back to Sterling yourself and you know, talk to the graduates there? What, like, what's your approach, if at all, to sort of differentiate, to, to bring those two different groups in? Yeah, so th- there's definitely a very varied recruiting program that we have. And it's it's really, right, our recruiting team is amazing. Like, I, I can't say enough because they ultimately, right, help us kind of like make those first connections, bring the energy to these these discussions. And so we have a well-oiled machine when it comes to, like, graduate recruiting. And graduate recruiting happens from a Putnam perspective at the undergraduate level. And then we hire quite a lot of PhDs as well. And so those are kind of like the two in streams kind of like into Putnam. And we have very good relationships with career services. We do a lot of on-campus activities. And so we really kind of like, like building that out. And so even for the UK right now, we're starting to kind of like set up kind of like those same type of programs that we've had kind of like in kind of like our core cities in the US. At the same time, we also then are accepting of the fact that there's a lot of people that after two or three years, they start to look for other opportunities. I think that's the environment very much that we're living in today. And so another core area of focus for us is kind of like there's people with a two, three year experience that kind of like have had that first job, are looking for a new challenge. And right, can we kind of like bring some of kind of like those individuals kind of like into, uh, into Putnam as well? And that's a little bit more, right? It's not as structured as a process, right? It's more of like your traditional kind of like recruiting process, but we've been successful in bringing those people in and they're often extremely high performers um, as well kind of like as they join the firm and then the third level of recruiting is more of that like uh that the more senior level kind of like the, the true project managers or even like principal partner level which is more what i call like the white glove service of recruiting because right they're, they're harder right individuals to have a lot of options out there and so we want to make sure that we can clearly articulate the story and the value that we can offer to them as individuals at the same time also making absolutely sure that it's the right fit for them to be at Putnam because we want to make sure that like sometimes you have a candidate and you think they're absolutely amazing. We did take a step back and say they're absolutely amazing, but they may not be quite the right fit for us as an organization because we don't think that this is what they really want, (laughs) which is fine, right? 
but it's better to then sometimes pass and focus on like the individuals that like you really feel like, okay, they're going to be in the trenches with you, helping you kind of like grow and evolve kind of like the business. Yeah. And I, I think that last point is so critical. Like you say, that sort of cultural fit, you know, my business is a lot smaller than yours, but it is so important because there's plenty of good people in, you know, in consulting, there's loads of great consultants. And I always, I think the way you phrased it is right is, you know, too often people talk about good and bad people, but you know, you talked about right there. And I think that right is, you know, someone might be right for Putnam and you need to decide as well. Someone might not be, that doesn't make them a bad person, but making sure they are that fit. And I think it's interesting to hear. And, and I think, talks to what you were saying with culture that you're sticking to that even in a hot market because i imagine it's very easy to say we need people let's just recruit you know they've been accenture they've been wherever but actually really staying true to that you know is obviously giving you the results and giving that culture that you wanted i think just because you mentioned it there rimco and, and i kind of i want to bring us to because as i said having not spoken to many guests who have been at one firm for their entire career and i think the last one i actually had was kevin ellis who's the um managing partner of pwc over here in the uk but i was fascinated to get touch on some of those points you talked about and maybe that starting piece you mentioned sort of people move often three or four years in you chose not to and you know i guess i'll phrase it as advice for people who are thinking about that kind of if someone in your team comes to you or you hear of someone thinking about it, like what advice do you give people at that level to decide whether they should move or not? Because the grass always looks greener. You know, someone might pay you a little bit more money or promise you a little bit more, but how can people actually decide what's right to make sure they're making the best long-term move for them? Yeah, I, I think it's a couple of different elements, I think, that go into that. The, the first element is understand not what the next six months look like but what the next two or three years will look like because often we make decisions kind of like in a snap moment maybe right you had a tough two months right and right the way the job market is today it's very easy to kind of find a rapid alternative and so asking the question where do i want to be longer term how does this step help me get there often right the first six months are pretty clear but how does it look over the next two three four years right in a consulting business you can be pretty transparent in kind of like what that may look like. And you can engage in a discussion around it. If if you join a small biotech or a large pharma, I can tell you the different pathways that that may go, right? Sometimes they're highly beneficial and really super exciting, but there's also a lot that are a lot more challenging associated with it. So I think it's thinking through what does that actually kind of like look like. The other piece that I would tell people is, Although it might feel like you kind of like topped out in your progression, kind of like from a development perspective, it kind of like goes in like 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 stop and starts, right? When when it comes to your development, it's not like a right a, a perfectly linear or exponential curve. It like okay, you go up a lot and then you stabilize a little bit, and then you have this like big jump forward because like something changes or something clicks and kind of like how you're actually kind of like approaching right the work that you're doing, and so thinking through. Right. What does that next kind of like incline look like? And is that something that I get excited about or not? And then I'm I'm like always very honest to people. I in the end, not everybody will be in consulting their entire life. <laughs> and that's absolutely fine. It's like what I always hope that people look back if they were to leave Putnam and look back like two, three, four, six months later and think, I grew professionally, personally so much over that time period. Yes, I might have had some really tough times because we're not in an easy job. But it really helped me kind of like progress kind of like myself forward. And I'm, ta- I'm having benefit from that kind of like as I'm moving into kind of like my next roles. And that gives me an enormous amount of pride because that means that like we as a firm, right, have done right by those people. We 
have benefited from their contributions to our work. <laughs> and they have grown and evolved and matured kind of like in many ways, kind of like during that time period as well. So it's been a win-win. I think a really good point. And I think it reinforces what you were saying around that journey of, you know, you think about where you want to be, but that doesn't have to be, you know, you will stay here for 10 years, 20 years, it might be five, six. And I guess there's also an element of decide what you want to be realistic. Because I do, I think there can sometimes be in our industry, people stay in, because like you say, you hear the kind of 10 years you make partner, sometimes people might stay past where that is right for them and actually being realistic about that and thinking, would I be better to, you know, your industry moved to a big farm or moved to a biotech at that right time, I think it's a really important point. But like you say, ultimately, if for your firm, you've given them the best experience and people leave, you know, with a thank you, that's that sort of success, isn't it? And I always say, right, I'm, I'm disappointed to see anybody leave. So so that's like my first is like, it's like, ah, it's like that's disappointed because I know for many people that come with that message, I know how successful they can be. Right within our firm, because I've seen kind of like their ability, their skill sets, their drive, how they've been able to grow since they joined Putnam. At the same time, right, we we know some people kind of like will look at other options, and right, we want to like make sure that like uh, okay, if they if they choose that road, they they still think back of kind of like a right, tremendous opportunity that they had here and the and the growth that they've gone through. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a great point, and and the other side of it, and you know, something I'm sure as sort of the firm grows, you'll you'll see as well. You may already have these. Is actually people coming back. You know, I I know when I was in uh, a previous consulting firm, people would do that. You'd go into industry for a couple of years and and come back, and I think that's that's always a testament to a culture as well. If you've you've got that happening, uh, absolutely, and it's and sometimes it's in different roles. Like I I just hired a chief of staff that like left us three years ago as a consultant and went into more of an operation role. And so like, it's a, it's a very nice kind of like evolution. And absolutely we have people that come and go. I think our recruiting team does a really good job and actually staying engaged with the people that are coming. Our, Our partner in New York is another good example. He really wanted to be in New York and we made him promise. Okay. So if we ever open an office in New York, you're going to come back. Right. So we called him kind of like once we're ready to open the office and said, well, it's time to come back because right, we're opening our office and right, he came back. So I think that that's kind of like what it speaks to kind of like, yes, it's offering people kind of like the experience and the opportunities kind of like will for some people mean, right? They will seek that like to come back after they've experienced. And sometimes the experience that they've had during that time is extremely valuable that they're coming back with. Oh, no, completely. I think those are great examples of, of like you say, that sort of culture in action. And I kind of, I guess this is another one of those as you've been there for the sort of your whole career. And I just wonder, so maybe we start at the leadership level, because I had another guest on the show a few episodes ago, and he he sort of said tongue in cheek, but he said, you know, I, I was a senior partner at various firms. And because his boss was always, you know, a few years older than him, they always remembered him as the analyst. And, you know, I know that for yourself, some of the partners you work with now are partners who were there when you started. And I you may just, you know, this may be a non-question, you just say it's really easy, but I'd love to understand sort of how that relationship works or, or has become something that works. Because in my head, it feels like there'd be a natural, you know, yes, Remco, you're the CEO, but I remember you when you were sort of the analyst, you know, and seeing the typos on your slides. Like, how did that evolve over the time you've sort of grown through the firm? And how, if at all, have you had to manage it now as CEO? Yeah, they definitely pointed out the typers on my slide. I can tell you that the, uh-huh. uh, the 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 first review that I had was with uh, with Eric and John, who are who are two partners at the firm right now, and it wasn't the most pleasant review I've had. I think the way that it has evolved is very gradual, and I think I definitely benefited from the part that right, I was a partner for a good 
almost like decades, right? Before kind of like getting into the, the CEO role. It was also a role that we as a team realized is different than what a traditional partner role is because the traditional partner role, right, is engaging significantly with the client. And so from a career perspective, right, that is something that I was interested in to kind of like evolve like my own career. But some of the partners that had been here longer than myself, right, didn't necessarily kind of like have that specific desire. They love building the practice areas. They love kind of like strategically thinking of how do we become of greater value to our clients? Where do we need to invest next to kind of like ensure that like we can provide the services that we need to provide to them? So it was honestly like fairly kind of like organic in the, the, the way that it was managed. And because we have such a long kind of like working relationships, I think it really helps us kind of like work through kind of like some of the challenges that we have because we are part of a greater organization, which means, right, in the end, sometimes there's a little bit like I'm, I'm in the middle, <laughs> right, of like managing kind of like what do we want to do as a firm and then making sure that we get the resources, right, that that we need to actually execute it and be able to kind of like justify the ask for those resources. So, but yeah, it's gone very organically. And although there are definitely plenty of situations where like we have spirited debates, right, in the end, right, we can go out and grab a beer. And right, really enjoy each other's company. So it's been easier than I think maybe uh, maybe I would have thought when kind of like we started the process. Uh, great to hear, and and like you say, I think it comes back to if you're you're all focusing on the same thing and you, you can enjoy each other's company and you know leave some of those you know spirited debates at the door. Like that that's how it works. And I guess equally, it's not a solo job. You know, like you say, there are you know, the partnership are all there to sort of do that as well. And I suspect actually as the partnerships diluted from the original sort of group that naturally occurs as well so i think that all makes sense and i'm pleased to hear that you survived your first review as well and you know, obviously whatever the feedback was you acted on and it's it's gone well for you and i maybe one more comment nick to make on that like at the end of the day and i think that if we think about kind of like who on our team is actually kind of like really driving the business forward and allowing us to grow but it, it is really kind of like the partners that do that like in some ways like that the ceo role although it sounds very glamorous and it's really exciting and like there's a lot of like opportunity right it becomes a little bit more like operation and and right higher level strategic but if you think about like okay who actually make this work who thinks of the of the smart ideas <laughs> right that's the team right and and i think that that's the beauty of this it's like it's in the end right like we started with at the beginning kind of like we're very much kind of like a bottoms up driven kind of like uh, organization where it's the the practice area the individuals that are focusing on people and operations that kind of like make it actually work and and are driving the strategic building blocks of the organization forward well i think Remke, you may have just answered my next question but i'm going to ask it because as, as much as i get more senior listeners i get more junior listeners and i think you know something that I always think about when I was in that junior consulting grades, and you probably did this, is you sort of say to yourself, oh, you know, you, like you say, you're out with your friends for a beer and you say, oh, well, you know, when I'm CEO, I'm going to do this. Or when I'm, you know, these partners don't know what they're doing. When I'm there, I'm going to change things. And I, I just, I think particularly as you've been through that journey, you know, you will have had those conversations at 21 and now as CEO, you're in that position. I just love to kind of, I guess, ask what were those misconceptions you may have had? And for anyone listening, what are the things that actually now you're in that role, you think, you know, this is why certain things are done or things that you would change and have changed sort of how has that evolved over that time? Yeah, the couple of layers to that, uh, to that question. So the, the first layer is, I think what I didn't realize at that point in time is, right, it's, it's in the end, right, it's a, uh, 
think about it as like a, a large living organism, right? That we are as an organization. And although it's, it sounds very easy to, oh, let's just make this change, right? Well, there may be other parts of the organization that like are not aligned to that, or there may be kind of like consequences kind of like that are unintended, but like have a kind of like material impact kind of like on the business as well. And so th- there's definitely th- this notion of you feel that something should you should just be able to do very quickly and then you actually like start to kind of like talk to some people about it and you get like a lot of like different viewpoints or you get pushback or you get and so realizing that in particular in like a a type of organization that we are with kind of like uh, very much kind of like a basically extremely smart people much smarter than i am right that right, have like really really good ideas to kind of like really think through okay if i make this change because right this person wants it how does it actually impact kind of like the broader kind of like organization and, and how do we kind of like work through that and align on that as a as a team the other part that honestly people often forget about is there's some changes that honestly like i would say oh yeah, yeah let's just make them and then you actually start to work through them say well what would it take to make them and then you start to talk and think about resources and like, okay, who's actually going to pull this through and how are we going to do this consistently across offices? And so some things like look so easy on paper till you actually like figure out, oh, it's a brilliant idea, but like where we just don't have kind of like the, the, the manpower at this point to kind of like coordinate and facilitate kind of like pulling it through. And then it becomes a matter of like prioritization, right? Okay, what, what are you going to be focused on? So yes, I've been on uh, plenty of uh, bar trips where you have a, uh, a drink and you say, oh, we should do this, 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 and this, and this. And like now, kind of like say like uh, like 20 years later, you realize that, yeah, maybe those were the right ideas, but the, the executional and the unintended consequences of some of those actions, right, are often what is kind of like limiting and or slowing down, I think, some of these changes. I think some really good points and particularly like you say that that unintended consequence I think that's often the everyone wants their favorite thing and you don't stop to think about what that could do to others and that is can be a really critical element I probably should have asked this earlier when we were talking about the growth journey but because you touched on it there I'm fascinated about how have you adapted or how's the leadership adapted to that speed of change problem as you've scaled over COVID? And what are some of those inflection points, if at all, from going from the 100 to 400 in how you've had to shift that approach? Because I think that's a fascinating challenge. Yeah, I think everybody responds to it a little bit different, right? Some people are very excited and energized by it because they thrive on growth. Others are rightfully so very worried about, okay, how are we going to kind of maintain culture, our values, kind of like as we go to to that, that growth aspect. Others like maybe like a little bit more like hesitant or resistant to kind of like that that type of evolution. And so the core aspect in kind of like my thinking in, in our thinking is really in order for us to prosper as a consulting company, right? Some level of growth is required. Like a, a consulting company that stands still is is really just slowly dying because you want to provide people the opportunity to continue to grow. And traditionally in consulting, right, you have to be able to kind of like allow people to get on that elevator and kind of like move, move on up into uh, at, through the various levels. So different people deal with that differently. And that's fine. And I think that the core part is is making sure that, that you use everybody's energy and focus, right, in the best way possible, which means that right, people that are very focused on culture and values, well, let's make sure that like, like they can right, contribute to kind of like maintaining that and engaging with the teams. People that are focused on, well, let's set up kind of like the, 
the next kind of like service offering that allows us to kind of like right, tap into a new area of business that historically we haven't been on yet. It's another like example of, well, then let's just focus on that piece then, because that allows you to kind of like right, get you kind of like out of bed in the morning, kind of like excited about kind of like what the day may bring. And so finding kind of like the right like spots where people kind of like feel comfortable and drive, I think is important. Yeah, and I, I think that comes back to actually sort of brings us full circle to where we started around actually that strategic approach of not having everyone involved in everything. You know, we talked about it earlier in terms of sort of the commercial elements of practices, but you know, if I'm hearing you correctly there, it's also get people involved in those passion areas. So one colleague may love culture, one colleague may love, you know, the physical office and how to create that, you know, that working environment. And actually that enables what you've talked about, that kind of actually then the changes become things people care about, think about, and, and manage together. So I, I think, yeah, really, really interesting point. And yeah, it's it, it's funny now being you know, as old as I am, thinking back to when I was 10 years younger, and I can now see why certain things are more complex. I guess this is this is the curse of age, isn't it? It's uh, youth doesn't listen to you, I think is the, the phrase. So I think really, really sort of yeah, great place actually, Remco. I think for us to kind of move towards the end and you know, draw to these are three questions that I ask every guest because I think we've covered some great ground and I always like that. What would you have done differently? Which I think we've covered really well. So these last three questions, or sorry, last two questions, I should say, are ones I ask all my guests and I always find the answers fascinating both for the similarities and differences. So the first one is about books and it's quite simply, you know, in the time you've been at Putnam, what is the book or books you've gifted to your colleagues, family, friends? What What is that book or books that have had the most impact on you and why? So book I've actually given to quite a few of my friends, almost more outside of, of consulting than inside, and pr- primarily those that are like more on the entrepreneurial side is a book that actually was written by a classmate of mine, Shamin, which is called like Dancing with Gorillas. And it's basically a book on like, how do you engage as a small kind of like startup with like large organizations that may want to partner with you. And the reason that I think this book is very valuable to entrepreneurs is because they see that. But actually, when you look at it and take a step back is because we are part of a larger organization. <laughs> There's actually some interesting lessons kind of like from our perspective in it as well, because in the end, right, we're right, a small kind of like part of our larger organization, how we engage with them, how we bring the partnerships and how do we actually like create that win-win kind of situation is very much relevant kind of like to, uh, to us as well. I think a great book. I, I try not to open these up, but I, I like what you said there as well, because I think so often we draw distinctions between corporates, for want of a better word, and startups. And like you say, actually, a corporate is just a group of startups all under one roof and being able to navigate that world, like you say, navigate a parent company, navigate a larger organization. I think it's probably just the same as a startup integrating or working with a, a corporate. So I love it. I also love the title. I think book titling is an art in itself. So I think brilliant recommendation. And I just, you mentioned you give it to people outside of consulting. Is there a specific type of person this book gets given to? Yeah, I have some friends that kind of have like more of like the the startup and they often come to me and say, well, once I'm ready for that transition to kind of like look at, okay, do I join something else? Do I look at like private equity? Do I look at right understanding how some of these relationships work and kind of like how you're thinking through that, I think is actually something that is extremely critical. And a lot of people right, that are true entrepreneurs that I think go for the first time true kind of like, okay, I now need my seed capital or right, I need my financing or I just want to get acquired. It's so new. And right, there's a lot of people coming at you with all kinds of like advice. But in the end, a lot of it is about culture as well. <laughs> right? How do you culturally fit with kind of like that next team that you may partner with or that organization that may be looking to acquire you? 
And so that's where I think kind of like this book has, has value because it provides a, a like a number of lessons, not only like on how to work, how to work kind of like with, with larger companies, but also like it, it touches on maybe not as direct, but indirectly on a lot of like the cultural aspects that are actually really critical to make these types of like collaborations a success. I think it sold it even more, Rimco. So that's going to be top of my uh, Amazon list shortly after this. And then our next question, this is a chance, I guess it could be to recap some of the things we talked about. It might be new points, but you have three people in front of you. You've got one who you know is, is yourself just before you joined, you know, one person just starting their career in consulting, one who is at that sort of, you know, we've talked three to four, but sort of that inflection point, you know, they've they've been in a, enough to have a bit of experience. And then the final one is someone approaching partner. And the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? Yeah, so the, the first piece of advice for like new kind of like individuals, often, right, they come in and, and they almost think about consulting as kind of like when you take classes at school, right? You got to take all the classes because that allows you to kind of like progress to, to that next level. The challenge in consulting is that's not really how it works because you get placed on projects and there is no magical checkbox where you're kind of like you're thinking through and say, okay, I check all these boxes, next level, check all these boxes, next level. So I always try to bring it back in the end, what you want to do is provide value. <laughs> and so whatever position kind of like that you're being placed in, whatever your role is on a project, right, you're seeking to right, provide value to your case team, to your clients, right, as you're kind of like executing those roles. So that's kind of like, the first piece that kind of like I would highlight for kind of like three, six months out of school, kind of like individuals. The piece that I would highlight to like individuals that are the three, four, five year mark is storytelling, right? Consulting, it's a storytelling job. It doesn't matter, honestly, what you do. You can build a financial model. Your financial model tells a story. If you create a slide presentation, it should create a story. If you write a discussion guide for an interview that you're looking to have with, with somebody, you're writing a story. So everything goes back to the elements of, of storytelling. And if you're a good storytelling storyteller, there's almost nothing that you cannot do <laughs> within consulting. Because that's how you engage with clients. You're telling them the story that allows them to buy into the strategic direction that, that you're providing to them. So that's probably what I would give to like the individuals that are like three, four, five years kind of like into it. And then the, the last in individuals that are getting to that principal partner level, my recommendation is play for the long term. It's very easy to kind of like look at, oh, I have this like project opportunity in front of it, right? I'm going to go all in and capture it. And you kind of know that the project will be torture. And so finding that right balance and building those strategic relationships with clients where you can have like be that true strategic partner rather than being purely looked at as like just another vendor that comes in, helps them with something and then is gone. And so that makes being a partner sustainable. If it's always kind of like you need to be on the hunt for that next thing that may be exciting, but doesn't set you up to the path of sustainability, I think is something that I would definitely recommend. Like I, I, I would recommend if when I were in that position <laughs> to myself and then I, like when people come up as well to kind of like highlight kind of like that, that nuance kind of like there's winning work and that's winning work that will actually help you for the next three, four, five, ten years because it sets you kind of like in a direction that can help you kind of like uh, make this a uh, make this a more sustainable kind of like uh, like pathway. I think some brilliant advice there, Remco, and yeah, uh, just the piece for the middle group stuck out just actually because I, I recently had a guest called Alison Essie who runs a, a business called The Storytellers, and she was talking about it very much for corporates, but like you say, I think ultimately everything's a story and. I actually think in our industry that can sometimes get lost. You know, people will focus on the data, the you know, the analysis, and actually 
humans are humans. You know, we, I'm sure you hear a, a lot as well. It's sort of CEOs, you know, you've got to treat them differently. And ultimately, you know, CEOs are humans and they want stories and that, that's really powerful. And now I think the other two pieces as well, you know, you're spot on that. That checkbox thing, I think is really, you know, it's not like you say, a college course or a computer game. You don't complete a level and then move up. So no, I think some brilliant advice there, Remco. And that really brings us towards the end. I think the only other thing to ask, and this is very much, you know, for anyone who's listened, wants to find out more about yourself, wants to find out more about Putnam, just be great to find out if people want to get in touch, where would you point them to? You know, where can they they learn more? Yeah, I definitely would recommend connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, that's the easiest way to kind of like engage with me. And then connect with Putnam on LinkedIn as well. Right. We we provide regular updates on kind of like the activities kind of like within our firm, be it about like thought pieces, career opportunities just how we engage kind of like with our teams from a culture and value perspective. So right, connect and kind of like see how we uh, we manage through some of these areas. Fantastic. Well, what we'll do, Rim, because we'll put links to both of um, your LinkedIn and, and Putnam's in the show notes as well. So anyone who's listening to this wants to go find them straight away. They're just there in the show notes. And otherwise, thank you. This has been great fun. It's been exactly what I'd hoped for when uh, Matt introduced us and said, you know, you'll have a great conversation. So thank you, Remco, and all the best for the rest of your week. Uh, very much appreciated, Nick. Really enjoyed the conversation. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.